Paul McLaughlin McLaughlin at work here on the west side of Manhattan in early 2009. Conversation today with Barry Conchie, the author of Strength-Based Leadership, Great Leaders, Teams, and Why People Follow. Start out with the big picture. Strength-Based Leadership, why this book now? Why did you and Tom author it? What is the message? Well, good morning. Paul, we were very keen to get a message out around leading research into leadership in probably three areas. The first was we uh, uh, realized that many leaders had uh, uh, not spent time thinking about strengths and the positive uh, effect that strengths can have on their organizations. We wanted to look at the research around that. The second thing is we wanted to see how strengths played out in a team to see the extent to which uh, teams could improve uh, by their knowledge of strengths and the balance of strengths within a team. And we also wanted to look at leaders through the lens of a follower. Uh, a lot of books have been written about leadership. Relatively few have been written through the eyes of a follower. We wanted to know what those eyes were seeing and what they were feeling, uh, and then to play that out into, uh, into, into the business world so that leaders could really understand how to learn from that. Um, what, where I want to go today is, is a discussion uh, that have picked up a theme over the last couple of weeks, basically since the early January, I guess, as the economy has uh, devolved, is one nice way of putting it. The relevance of books that clearly were written in the midst of uh, a, an era in which when people could point out leadership strengths, leadership qualities, and yet now we have seen some of those uh, leaders have tripped, stumbled, and fallen. Uh, what I'd like to hear a little bit is, is a little bit more of the rationale around the book in the theoretical, uh, if you will. And then ultimately, perhaps after you have your next uh, interview, we can come back and uh, address the more um, realistic, if you will, the leadership going forward and what have, uh, what have we learned. But when you put the book together, and I'm reminded of one, that a book that came to my attention um, by Napoleon Hill, who I had never been um, aware of uh, before. Uh, and I noticed uh, certain recurring themes, obviously, through your book and, and his book, Think and Grow Rich. Um, the theory behind leadership when you put this together, which this is a story-based book, strengths-based leadership, your book. Um, how did you select the people that you wanted to uh, show that they embodied? What was your definition? Let's start. What was your definition of leadership that you started out with? Well, that's an interesting question, Paul. We, we know through our own research that there's no one set of characteristics that defines great leadership. And the evidence of that is staring us right through, the, right through our eyes. We look around the world. We see uh, amazingly good leaders. They are remarkably different from each other. So we know that there's no one set of characteristics that define great leadership. So what we wanted to try to find out is, where does great leadership come from? And how can we help leaders understand more about that? So we did research into uh, leadership strengths to look at the uh, key strengths that different leaders brought to the table. Uh, and we started to find patterns in the way that those strengths played out, particularly across a team. Uh, so we uncovered four broad domains of leadership uh, that seemed to be critical for a team to have in evidence in order for that team to display effective leadership. And when it came to selecting individual leaders that we wanted to interview and study, we wanted to find people who were probably some of the best examples of each of those domains. Because the other, the other aspect of our research showed us that no one leader 
is excellent at all aspects of leadership. Right. Uh, it, ju it just doesn't work that way. And, and that came uh, apparently as a surprise to you and Tom? Um, I don't think it was a surprise. Uh, what we were uh, interested in, though, was in how that played out across a team. We'd always knew that great leaders were different. What we hadn't appreciated was that for a, for a leadership team to be successful, actually these four domains needed to be in evidence in a leadership team in an organization. Now, the extent to which that played out in our research did surprise us. Uh, and therefore, when we started to say, how can we help explain these domains to, uh, to the br broader audience out there, uh, we tried to pick some very, very good examples of leaders who had brilliance in a, dema a domain mm -hmm. or two domains, and in that way, provide illustration that the messages of the book were actually resonant in real, live, highly respected, highly successful leaders that many people would know. And it was that that was the basis of the selection. And the, when you talk about leadership, and I should point out that one of the hidden gems in the book is that when one purchased the book, uh, Strength-Based Leadership, there is an uh, online uh, test, if you will, or um, uh, there's a, a premium. <laughs> gift with purchase, if you will, in the back of the book. Just tell us about that uh, and how that plays in when one purchases this fine book. Well, in this book, we've uh, included the leadership version of the StrengthsFinder 2.0 assessment. And uh, the rationale for that was we wanted people to get some immediate read on their own leadership strengths. One of the remarkable things uh, about the way people respond to questions about their strengths, Paul, is that uh, people lack language. They lack an ability to really uh, uh, describe uh, the things that they're naturally very good at. Mm -hmm. So by including this, the assessment in the book, what we're hoping is that people can immediately get a language that makes sense. They can get some uh, immediate feedback on, on what their own leadership looks like. And we're hoping that that will really drive their curiosity to look at the people around them and to look at how the combined nature of strengths across a group of people can be used for positive effect. And so it's a direct application to the individual reader to be reinforced by what you have found in the book as applicable to leadership in general and see how they can dovetail with that. Yes, and it might be that people uh, get more insight then into the, their best way of leading. So, for example, the four domains which we, which we talk about in the book, uh, executing, uh, influencing, relationship building, and strategic thinking. Uh, you know, you might have people out there working on the presumption that they have to be great in all those, in all those domains. Right. Now, if we can help through an assessment to provide each individual with greater clarity, maybe in one area of leadership, which they just seem to be naturally extremely gifted and competent at, then I think that will make a big contribution to their own personal effectiveness. Because the other aspect of it is, if we go to work as leaders each day operating on a pretense, Mm -hmm. where we believe that we should be good in an area, even when we are not, and we spend a lot of our time trying to get even better in that area, our evidence shows that those are the leaders that tend to be mediocre or tend to fail. When you were talking about leadership skills and those strengths, did you have a, uh, a window into how aware people were, true leaders in certain areas, of their own tragic flaws? Well, sort of, the, sort of the barbell effect of leadership, and then do you really understand when you are going to step on it? Because it would clearly point out that if we look at, at presidents and corporate leaders, particularly today, 
that those tragic flaws may have overcome their leadership skills. I'm just wondering how you and Tom, who have been examining leadership and in the context of today, would see not only do you reinforce your strengths, but are you sufficiently aware of your flaws to avoid them? Well, I think there's a slightly different way of looking at that. And I would hope so. The, the, <laughs> you, um, you guys wrote the book. I, <laughs> this, is what, this is exactly what we want to learn. Thank you. There is a, there's an obvious barometer out there in the results that you achieve that give you an insight into your effectiveness. Now, if, if that barometer is going in the wrong direction, then trying the same old tried and tested methods that you've used in the past probably isn't going to, probably isn't going to shift, the, uh, shift the needle at all. What we've discovered is that, um, is that an understanding of your strengths along with an acute awareness of what you are not particularly good at is critical in order to understand how you can be a more effective leader. That, that, but the difference in our approach isn't just that it's an awareness of what your weaknesses are that will help you be a better leader, but what you need to do to surround yourself with the right people, the right blend of strengths in those people, as well as the technical expertise and the knowledge that you would expect them to bring to the table. And it is the beneficial and cumulative effect that you find by balancing the strengths of people that is nearly always the difference between an organization succeeding and failing. So it's not down just to one person being right. clear of their strengths right. and what they're not particularly good at, but what are they actually doing with that knowledge? Now, if a leader chooses to go down the avenue of remediation, let's just say that I'm deficient in these areas of leaders, I now understand that, I'm more aware of it, I'm now going to spend the next six weeks studying my deficiencies, trying to do more of these things to try to get better and better and better and better and better. Our research suggests that those leaders tend to be the less, least successful of all, because they tend to build their leadership around bringing something up from a point of acute weakness, maybe to just being average or, or, or mediocre, and you mm -hmm. never get great leadership from those situations. So when you study really, really effective leaders, and there are four great examples in the book, those, are leader, those leaders are not building their leadership around weakness. They're not learning more about their weaknesses, they're not right. trying to fix all of their weaknesses, they're aware of them. And they've surrounded themselves with people who do things that they're not very good at. And they do those things far better than they ever could do. And in those circumstances, we find everybody's putting their best foot forward. I think that's a dominant revelation of the book. So what we've, and the way we've described this in simple terms, Paul, is we're saying, that great leaders are not well-rounded, but great teams are. Right. And I think that's an important point that wasn't, um, was not evident from looking at the, t at the title and just going through it without appreciating that the subtitle, Great Leaders, Teams, and Why People Follow, is a key ingredient to what the takeaway from the book, that you appreciate what your leadership skills are, you augment them, um, in the team. So it's really the team that is as a leader. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've been very clear in the book in stating that it's extremely important that each individual has got clarity around their leadership strengths. That's mm -hmm. an absolute prerequisite. Mm -hmm. You need to know what you bring to the table. You need to know what form that comes in. You need to know what your very best contribution is. And everybody on a leadership team needs to be able to answer that question through that same 
through that same lens. But you really have to get effective leadership by looking at the composite of what a team of people can achieve. Mm -hmm. and, and whether you're looking at uh, a Jack Welsh or whether you're looking at a Barack Obama or whoever, uh, they're not going to stand or fall just on what they bring to the table. They're going to have people around them who are a major part of their success. What we're trying to help establish in this book is that having a critical understanding of the balance of leadership strengths that themselves are very good predictors of future success is probably one of the smartest things to do right now. Taking a step back and using the book to learn about oneself, do you find that the leaders that you looked at, were they people who had um, intellectually understood what their strengths were? Did they really stop? Did they take a test like yours? Was it intuitive or had they been coached or had they made a, a real strengths assessment so that they could articulate? I, I'm going back to the, the, the standard interview. What are your strengths and weaknesses? And, and a, a book like this reminds me that, if you, that you should be able to catalog what your strengths are um, quite well. Do you find that leaders were able to do that? Well, there's a great story uh, about Brad Anderson when Brad talks about his, his need to get away from the business and think things through. Now, Brad is, is just a fabulous strategic thinker. Now, you so know, for our audience, you might remind people who... Brad Anderson is the chief executive officer of Best Buy. Okay. And uh, Best Buy, uh, one of the most successful uh, retail... Uh, organizations in the country mm -hmm. um, and a hugely respected leader and Brad talks about how he had this intuitive awareness of his need to detach and really process ideas and take time away from the business to really work through ideas on his own so to come back to your question you know was it an intuitive awareness did he take an assessment did he get coached actually all of those things happened with Brad but his real acute awareness only came to to, to, to clarity in his mind when he, he took an assessment and understood more about why the need to do what he did was driving him in, in his behavior. And he, he, he started to build his effectiveness around that knowledge. So rather than fight it and say, oh, this is the wrong thing to do, other people aren't doing this, I need to do this, 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 and this, uh, I need to stay engaged in the details and do, do the operational aspects of leadership. He actually realized that when he did that, it took energy away from him, it made him less effective, and as a consequence, uh, you know, he would not be successful as a leader if he did what convention would dictate that he do. So instead, he started to get greater clarity around his leadership, uh, he started to do more of the things that he'd naturally done, and as a consequence, his leadership was more effective as a, as, as a result. And I think the results of Best Buy are a testimony to that. Mm -hmm. Apparently, skills that were not found perhaps in Circuit City and some of the other of their competitors. I mean, some of the circumstances have certainly um, may perhaps overcome certain leadership skills. Uh, that, that may well be true. Um, certainly, from Best Buy's perspective, there is no doubt that Brad Anderson has optimized his leadership, and he tells the story of that in the book. He took the strengths assessment. Uh, he's strongest in the strategic <laughs> thinking domain. Right. Uh, he'd naturally been gravitating towards that area of operation. This gave him real clarity. Right. And as a consequence of that clarity, it, it, it encouraged him to, to pursue more of it. And as a result, 
Uh, he spent a lot of time thinking about the brilliance in people that he needed to surround himself with in order to compensate for those areas of leadership where he was clearly less effective, and, and he decided he wasn't going to spend much of his time. Um, all of the people whose stories are related in, in the book, they are all, if you will, clients of the Gallup organization? The people that you have worked with professionally? In three cases, yes. Okay. Uh, yes, we, we've, uh, we, we have uh, Simon, uh, Simon Cooper, who's the CEO of Ritz-Carlton, mm -hmm. um, uh, Mervyn Davis, who uh, has just uh, moved on from his position as uh, CEO of Standard Chartered Bank and is now part of the uh, UK uh, financial advisory group to the UK government. Right. as we go through the financial crisis, uh -huh. uh, and, and obviously Brad Anderson. Those, those three are, are current clients of, of the Gallup organization. Uh, and Wendy Kopp is uh, founder and CEO of Teach for America. Uh, we, we are very, very strong, uh, strong advocates of what right. she does and what, she, what she's trying to achieve. Remarkable organization. Uh, uh, but we don't, have a, we don't have a client relationship with her. Now, now speak perhaps to Teach. Use that as an example. Um, what were some of the, in, in, in putting together something that is as common, if you will, as the need for education, but she was able to really, um, let me ask you, what was her core skill? Well, um, she's, she's an incredibly strong executional leader. She gets things done in circumstances where um, everybody would suggest that she should fail. I mean, she, she, she comes up with this idea. I'm sorry, could you say that again? I was distracted. She, su she succeeds in circumstances where everybody thinks she would fail. That she particularly would fail? Uh, where anybody would where fail. Where anybody would fail. Yeah, okay. I mean, she came up with this idea that wouldn't it be great if we took, uh, you know, Ivy League and Ivy League graduates and, and sprinkled them into the public school system right. and really tried to bring expertise and, 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 and uh, insight that would benefit everybody. Right. Now, now, what a crazy idea. I mean, who, who, who would think that that could possibly work? I right. mean, the, the whole system didn't seem to accommodate it. Right. Uh, nobody could see the, the, the reasoning behind it. There was no funding behind it. She had no resources to draw on. There was no infrastructure around it. Right. Two years later, it was one of the most popular picks yeah. for any graduate leaving an Ivy League as a, as a stepping point to a career in whatever line of work they were going into. Right. To this day, it's grown to be one of the most successful uh, um, uh, means of getting uh, graduate students before they go into work into public schools and who would have thought that was possible here you had a leader who could make things happen so she had this tremendous executional ability she just she just cleared blockages she right. just found a way made, through insurmountable way problems happen. she is the epitome of the executional leader and she's brilliant at it and she knows it and when we when we uh, took her through strengths finder and helped her to understand that all the pieces fell into place it absolutely made sense great um paul mclaughlin speaking with barry conchi um, we're going to take a break from this portion of the of the conversation as uh, Barry goes on to speak with some others, addressing the book Strengths-Based Leadership. Um, the imprint is Gallup Press, and the co-author is Tom Rath. The book follows uh, StrengthsFinder 2.0, uh, authored by Tom a couple of years ago, and we're delighted to have the opportunity to speak to uh, Barry this morning. We'll continue uh, shortly. Thank you. Thank you. And Barry Conti has left the room, if not the building. His schedule had him conducting another discussion with somebody not as nice or as interested in him 
as we are here on McLaughlin at Work. Paul McLaughlin, your audio guide to the workplace, the work wonk. Delighted to be speaking with uh, Barry Conchi. The book, again, Strength-Based Leadership. One of the couple of themes that you'll hear us discussing as we pick up with Barry will be the relevance of books that were put together in frothier times. Times ain't frothy now. We haven't even, we don't know how dead this beer is going to get. But right now, these are not frothy. But I think it is relevant to find out whether the books that were written are going to be as good in the days ahead and as relevant and, and as impactful, if you will, as they are when they were first conceived and then written. We usually like to know whether the books have uh, a global impact or whether they are focused more on the American audience, American management, American strengths, if you will, which probably are different than Japanese strengths. Certainly the team building is different, although invariably there's an uh, example taken from Japanese car manufacturers, what they learned from us and what we in turn have learned from them. But this whole notion of uh, strength-based uh, leadership, I think, goes in the right direction. But we'll find out from Barry whether he thinks that that is as pertinent today as it was when they were looking at people whose success may have been more attributed to the times than their own skills. Hey, we should probably point out, which is an innovation here on McLaughlin at Work, on webtalkradio.net, that you can see some pictures if you're um, not visually impaired and if your computer, more importantly, is not visually impaired. And if the technology works, you may be able to see some of the proceedings here, a couple of snaps that we took, obviously of a highly professional quality, the same, uh, same quality that is not resonant in the audio. It's an uptick, but uh, you might notice the gentleman on the left, Jeffrey Brewer is the editorial director from Gallup Press, and he sat in with the discussion, wanted to get a sense of how McLaughlin at work operates here and listen to some of his colleagues uh, put into an audio fashion a little bit about their books, their own background, uh, their strengths, strengths as uh, being interviewees. So we hope you enjoy the addition of, of pictures. Um, adds a dimension, much better than video, uh, and we'll be more of these um, as we continue to make things better for you here on McLaughlin at Work. Barry's back. And Paul McLaughlin, back with Barry Conchi. Well, in the uh, context of this interview, it will not appear that anything has changed. A lot has changed. Barry's been off speaking to other people. Allow us to uh, rethink the first few minutes of our discussion and, if you will, recalibrate the direction that we wanted to go for the next segment of this discussion around strengths-based leadership, the book that addresses great leaders and is important as important teams and why people follow uh, Barry Kanchi, could you repeat the those four basic themes around strength-based leadership? And then let's discuss how relevant this book is today. It may have been relevant this time last year, and most of the examples were taken from people who had achieved success prior to 2008. Everybody has suffered a bit in 2008. But this book is, in fact, probably more relevant today than it would have been in the good times. Um, and I'd like you to address why you think it is more relevant today than when the good times, they did roll. 
Well, to the first point, Paul, if we just look at the areas of effective leadership across a team, it's absolutely critical for a leadership team to show great competence in four broad areas of leadership. Competence, so you said? They need to show competence in right. four broad areas. Okay. We need to see teams with great strengths across four domains of leadership. Okay. Those domains being executing, influencing, relationship building, and strategic thinking. Mm -hmm. Now, we know from our work and our studies that no one leader is brilliant in all those four areas. In mm -hmm. fact, we've never found a leader brilliant in those four areas. So given that we know that, it's very, very important that a team shows competence in, 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 in those broad areas of leadership. Now, it's, it, it, it's interesting when we've studied different leadership teams, when you ask the question of a company, why are leaders in the positions that they're in, many are there as a consequence of their technical skills, their knowledge, uh, their experience. Uh, and those are very, very good reasons for having people on a leadership team. We just don't think it's enough. Uh, so when you then look at the natural strengths of these leaders, we're finding leadership teams that are remarkably unbalanced from a strengths perspective. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Uh, we find teams where the composition of the strengths of the individuals are all remarkably similar. So we might find, for example, tremendous amount of influencing within a team, tremendous executional focus, pretty consistently across all members of a team. Mm -hmm. But we might find a pretty significant gap around strategic thinking. So they might all agree with each other. They might look at problems in exactly the same way. They might all agree the right way to deal with problems. But the lack of that strategic partner who might turn around and say, hang on a minute, are we looking at this from the right situation? Are we considering all angles of that situation? Might not necessarily be present in one of those teams. Mm -hmm. So it would be of critical importance for a team to consider that as part of how it thinks about building a team. Uh, and, and in order to do that effectively, you need to know the strengths of the individuals very well. Mm -hmm. So to the first point, these four domains are extremely important for getting the right composition of people on a leadership team so that a leadership team can then be effective. In terms of the timing, um, given the pressures that leaders are under right now, it's probably more important that different perspectives, different strengths are being brought to play on the analysis of the problems that a business finds. Um, maybe, Paul, having everybody on a leadership team agreeing is a sign of a problem rather than a rather than an asset. Almost the lack of the devil's advocate in the corner suite. That's correct. I mean, maybe, maybe having five people sat around the table saying, you know, that looks like a pretty good idea. But that, maybe, maybe a bell should be ringing at that point and saying, hang on a minute, we all agree on this. Is it because we're all looking at things through the same way? Uh, uh, or is it that we might need to bring in a different perspective? And have we taken that into account in the way that we've put our team together. So right now, given the pressures that many businesses are under, uh, it would seem to us to be of more importance and more significance to have a conversation based on the balance of strength on a leadership team, uh, even more so uh, than, than maybe a year ago. To, to dwell on the negative, which is not what the Gallup organization does and not what Barry Conchie does, um, but clearly people are feeling negative about what happened in 2008. Uh, cr critical question for somebody who has studied leadership. What went wrong? Well, we didn't study in the book 
what went wrong with the economy. <laughs> uh, we, and we, you didn't we made, predict it. We, we, and we, <laughs> we did not predict it. We did not delve into uh, uh, the, the causes of the financial crisis. Right. We just looked at what it is that followers expect in leaders, uh, whether you're going through good times or bad. And it's, it's really pretty remarkable when you look at the discoveries that we uncovered through uh, studying what followers want in leaders and thinking of their application to the current crisis to understand how easy it is right now for some leaders to make some unwise choices. So very briefly, uh, Paul... I'm sorry, say that again. It's very easy to see why some leaders could make some unwise choices okay. right. uh, by not attending to what followers are expecting of them in their leadership situation. Okay. Leaders might think they need to hunker down and, you know, they well, might need to Well, take Lehman as a specific things. example. Relatively reported, relatively weak board. Very strong in the, 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 the suite, the leadership skills that Mr. Fold exemplified over the years brought them to great uh, prominence. And so perhaps with success on the part of an individual, the, re the vision, uh, the revisiting of how the team is composed begins to fall away. So people think with success and maybe looking at some of the examples that you used in the book, do, is, it a, is it a mark of the leader to constantly assess what the team has, e even if they're successful, or do you, you sort of fall into what would appear to be the government and private industry trap that relatively few people had the answers because the good times bailed them out of bad decisions. There are three critical factors, and I think you have to get them all right. Okay. And maybe companies that struggle and fail, they might get one right, they might get two of these things right, they're certainly not getting all three of them right. The right. three things are, you've absolutely got to know your strengths as a leader. Yep. You need, need to know what you're good at, you need to know what you're not good at. Right. You need to then, secondly, use that information to build a team that compensates for the things where you're not particularly good and brings people into the team who are far better than you are at the areas where you're deficient. The third thing is you need to attend to critical follower needs. Now, those follower needs are you need to make sure that there is trust in the organization, that you operate with compassion, that you create stability, and you also build hope. Now, our contention through our research is that when those three ingredients are in place, you tend to see a high-performing, high-sustaining organization. And when they're not, you either see intermittent performance or you see a struggling organization. It, were you prescient when you decided on using hope after seeing the, the title of uh, President Obama's book, The Audacity of Hope? That it, it, Speak to hope for a minute. Well, we didn't decide hope. Uh, followers did. Right. Uh, so when we did the research into what followers really wanted, we asked questions. What is it that you most respect in, a, in the leader that you admire? And in, in the time frame in which this uh, kind of research was conducted a couple of years ago? Preceded the financial crisis. Right. It actually preceded Obama's nomination to the uh, presidential ticket. Okay. So it wasn't so influenced it would, would have been, yeah, Right. It would have sort of more in 2007. Correct. Than when he really is ascendancy in, in, in early 2008 and people start to listen to him. That's right. And we'd okay. already built into the research uh, an approach which took out undue influence of any one individual okay, because fine. we specifically asked followers 
to, 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 to name a particular leader that they were thinking of when okay. we were then asking them, what do you most admire in them? And we captured open-ended responses to that question. And then we looked at all the words and phrases that, that came out of that right. and started to say, well, does this make any sense? Are there any You Googled your own groupings? research and see, who, see what, what were the keywords. Yeah, we did factor analysis into the terms. Mm -hmm. We tried to find out the degree of consistency. With and that's what the Gallup organization is, is very adept at doing. Indeed we are. Yeah, that's one uh, of your strengths. That is indeed uh, one, of our, one of our major strengths. We can take and synthesize a massive amount of data that we collect through survey and right. actually make sense of it. Right. And when Tom and I were looking at the uh, terms that were, that were... This is Tom uh, Rath, your co-author. Tom Rath, co-author. Uh, were looking at the terms that people were using to describe the leaders that they most admired, they started to group naturally into these four broad follower needs. Right. Now, as we looked at it in, 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 in the initial stages, the question that we asked is, does it vary depending on whether a follower is thinking of a leader that's very close to them, like, for example, a community leader, a school leader, a church leader, right. or whatever? Right. Um, uh, and, uh, and does it vary? Somebody they're very quite familiar with, then, as, a, as opposed to a removed political figure who they never met and can only listen to sound bites or but what other people are talking about them. Right. Yeah. So we, we, did, we did the research in two stages. Mm -hmm. The first stage was where we didn't make any differential uh, uh, determination on whether a leader was distant or close. We right. just asked them for a leader that they admired. Okay. And then the second stage was we went back and said, well, hang on a minute. What about leaders who are, who are distant from you? Are the same words and phrases coming out as you think of those leaders that you admire, even when you don't know them personally? Right. And that's when we were blown away, because the consistency with which these terms kept coming out right. applied just the same for leaders who are distant from an individual that they admire compared to leaders who they might know personally and admire. And it was at that point that we realized that these four terms have got resonance across all leadership in all walks of life. Uh, and that leaders really need to do pay attention to these at whatever, you, at whatever level your leadership is playing out. Now, I'm going to interrupt myself to say you obviously, from, from your, your speaking, you are, I don't know whether you're an American citizen, I, know, I, know, I don't know whether you're an immigrant, uh, but the, the, the kind of research you were doing around this was around an American population? It, it was in the first stage, and then okay. what we did in the second stage was... You may the, identify your country of origin. My country of origin is the United Kingdom. I'm, I'm English, Paul. <laughs> and, um, and as, he, as he leans into the microphone to make sure that we, <laughs> that we know that. Oh, you don't I'm sound a, that at all, I'm a, very I'm country. A proud, I'm a proud legal alien of the United States. Um, the, uh, with papers, however. Uh, with, with, with the correct documentation, and uh, I'd be happy to show that to you. Very good. Um, the... The issue about, um, about uh, leadership outside the United States right. is, actually, is actually very, very pertinent from our perspective. We've already conducted and are in the process of even more research now into looking at the follower needs in different parts of the world. What we have found out so far is that in, in foreign countries of an English-speaking origin, where we've already conducted this research, okay. these same terms are showing consistency. All right. uh, and we're going to pr probably produce uh, more information and more research on this if we do subsequent editions of the book, where we'll try to, right. to, to kind of wrap up that research. But what we're finding right now is that these things are remarkably, remarkably consistent over, over different countries, uh, and certainly consistent over different levels of leadership. Uh, uh, another interjection, but when um, I had the opportunity to visit uh, Russia uh, a number of years ago, I don't know what, what it was called at the time, but I think it's Russia now, 
um, and was in St. Petersburg, the observation was made by uh, an, an, an elderly person with whom we were traveling that wasn't it remarkable that in St. Petersburg uh, there were so few children around. And when we talked to somebody in the community, it was because there was lack of hope that people were not having children because they were not confident that the environment would, that they would bring children into the world was a suitable. They just did not have confidence in the future of Russia. And the birth rate in Russia at the time was extraordinarily low, and particularly around St. Petersburg. It's an interesting um, observation on the economy that, we'll, that we will see as we come out of these times, and this is ex expanding the conversation past strengths-based uh, strength leadership, but the birth rate here in the U.S., it will be interesting to see what happens, uh, whether young couples now will delay having children because they are, they are without that hope um, as, as a follower in an economy. So I, it, it, it's an observation, but I think it's, it's so much part of um, the leadership and what uh, another theme here and I was uh, speaking to your editor, uh, Jeff Brewer, about this before you re-entered the room, is the importance of communications. So I noticed in, one, I noticed in the book that you, you have a section, I'm getting a little bit off the topic, but we'll come back to the current, the, the relevance of the book here in 2009 as opposed to when it was um, originally perhaps perceived. Uh, in additional resources, you talk about leading with communication, and, and I quote, people strong in the communications theme generally find it easy to put their thoughts into words. They are good conversationalists and presenters. Is one of the, um, one of the themes that, uh, that people latch onto, uh, in addition to the ones, is the ability of somebody to communicate with them? Where is, where is that quality that got Barack Obama elected? Where is that in leadership? I'm, mind, I'm, I'm reminded in your description of children in Russia of a, of a quote from Daniel O'Connell, who was an Irish home rule leader in 1829, who said, I'll defy you to agitate a man on a full stomach. And what he meant by that was that if people's basic needs... The Irish have, have been, a way of putting things, don't they? They do, yes. Uh, what he was really saying was that if people's basic needs are met, then they're kind of satisfied, they're okay, they're not going to cause any trouble. What we found is that just meeting a person's basic needs from a leadership perspective isn't really sufficient to create uh, a positive, high-performing, uh, uh, endearing culture that people can really commit to. It requires more than that. Uh, you referenced hope before. And you also talked about communication. There is absolutely no doubt in our mind that when we look at hope from a leadership perspective, it's truly aspirational. So in all of our follower needs, the basic needs are there. We, we know that people need a full stomach. They need the security of knowing that they've got a job. They need a security, the security of knowing that things are going to be okay. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we want people to be lied to because the, the trust and the honesty with which we convey the situation that we're in is critical to get right. Mm -hmm. But we need to have security that we're in safe 
hands. And we also need to know that people are looking out for us, that people are caring for us. So, so to Daniel O'Connell's sense, and the sense of what you saw in Russia, basic needs, uh, they're ticket things. We need them. They're the, the basis on which everything else is built. But if you really want to drive an organization and drive uh, uh, people positively, there has to be hope. There has to be aspiration. There has to be some positive intent. There has to be some aspirational goal that says this is all worthwhile. And the very best leaders are, are, are seeing that. And that's what, leaders are, uh, that's what followers are expecting in the very best leaders. Let me give you an example, Paul, from, from the stats. And uh -huh. we, we quote this in the book. Um, just take an issue like, does the company's leadership make me enthusiastic about the future? Um, well, we ask, that, we ask that question. And what we find is that... And you ask that question in the good times. We asked that question in good times and bad. Right. And what we, what, we, what we found was that people who, of the people who strongly agree to that statement, the company leadership makes me enthusiastic about the future, 69% of them are, are highly engaged in what they do. And if you disagree with that statement, one in a hundred are engaged at work. Now, you think about that from a, from a sense of well-being. Think of that in terms of culture. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if I do not feel excited, if I do not feel optimistic about what the future holds for me, uh, I, I'm likely to be less engaged in everything that's going on around me. I'm likely to be less positive and engaged in my family life. I'm likely to be less positively engaged in my community. I'm certainly going to be less engaged in my work. So you have to meet the basic requirements of leaders, of, of followers, uh, when you're a leader. But you have to make sure that the hope and the optimism and the positive view of the future is balanced, because that seems to be the factor that creates the greatest degree of resonance in followers. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to make any points specifically about about the presidential election but you know um, you know you need to look very very carefully and, and ask yourself a question uh, uh, was it was it was it competence and was it the uh, conveying of, of a safe pair of hands that won the election for Obama or was it the presumption of competence and the fact that he was offering some kind of hope uh, and, and some optimistic view of the future that won the election I think you'd have to you'd have to consider that, but this provides a very good template for analysis to be able to answer that question. When we talk about hope and, and a follower, it, it, it's an interesting um, you, you put together an interesting parallel in terms of the thought process that in describing uh, leadership, they the strengths that are required for leadership teams to succeed is that they have to be uh, in touch with and aware of their constituency, of what their concerns are about their constituency. Um, to your point, and I'm not picking apart the words, but it seems to me that now in 2009, people are much more aware of what they don't know than they than maybe perhaps two years ago. So in the good times, they're prepared to allow things to go along. Now when you're talking about Hope, and this in, in way of directing the conversation to the new leadership skills, there seems to be a lot of voids uh, in terms of the uh, who do you trust, if you will, and whether who really has the answers. It would appear that one of the, that the icons have fallen, you know, whether it is uh, Alan Greenspan, whether it's uh, Warren Buffett, 
whether it is the supply siders, whether it is the political establishment, whether it's the Kennedy name, all there's there's a lot of doubt about that which in which we placed a lot of trust before. Does that change is subtly but in very real terms sort of the awareness? Uh, how does that change? How does that change in your assessment? the leadership skills required and the team that's put together uh, going into this period, taking from the what you've learned, what you've seen from history, from how people have done it before. Let me sharpen the question. Are we starting all over again? Are, are we at a point where this whole thing of leadership is there going to be new kinds of leaders emerging that maybe had variations on the strengths that you discuss in your book, the book being Strength-Based Leadership, you and Tom Rath, Barry Kanji being my guest, do you anticipate that they'll change? I think you need to take a step back, Paul. Um, I think that if the primary basis of your leadership is technical competence, then if you get to the point where you can't answer the technical questions in front of you, then your leadership is going to suffer. Um, and, and I think that if you just look at leadership as exuding technical competence, there are massive things missing from a follower perspective that followers really need from you. And if those things aren't there, then your leadership is going to be diminished. Uh, what we found and is that... And that was particularly true perhaps in the financial services industry. I, uh, People didn't know that which they had invested in or the rather arcane financial derivatives that they were dealing with. And it's an interesting, interesting point to make. I think that where we would suggest that uh, an opportunity exists, and it's perhaps more acute now than it was a year ago, is that the real leaders who are going to step into the void, and the real leaders who are going to really drive a positive uh, uh, approach towards the future, uh, are leaders who are going to pay particular attention to the issues that we've laid out in the book. So they're going to be more aware of their strengths, more aware of the strengths of people around them rather than just their technical competence and they're going to attend to critical follower needs and those follower needs uh, need to be based on things that are, uh, are, are fairly basic as requirements to do with the trust that people have in their leaders uh, the amount of care that those leaders show for them uh, and the stability that those leaders can can translate across their organizations but they're gonna that they need to feel excited uh, and that's the opportunity that, that exists right now. Uh, you, you're going to see a massive amount of, of, of strong followership towards leaders who can portray a way out which is truly aspirational uh, from, the, from the crisis that people perceive around them right now. And it's going to be very, very important for leaders to attend to those things. I'll give you a, a very brief example. Yeah. I, I did an analysis of a... Of I'm getting a, um, a little indication here that we may be a little short on time. Okay. And I, I, do, have, I, I do want you to address... Go, go yours, and then I'm going to come back and talk about a generational thing. Are the leaders of the future people who are not in position today by virtue of the fact that the people who are in leadership positions today cannot reconstitute their leadership okay. to the success of the people. Let me cover out. both points. Um, so I did an analysis of a, of a CEO's corporate message to his entire organization, which went out three weeks ago, and I got colored highlighter pens, and I went through it, and I highlighted any evidence that spoke to trust, compassion, stability, and hope. Uh, three things were hit very, very consistently. Trust was hit. Compassion was hit, stability was hit. There was nothing in there that was aspirational. 
and, and, and I sat down and I gave him, the, I gave him his, uh, his message back to him and I said, so what do you think? And it was, it was truly enlightening for him to think about a massive area of leadership that he was completely missing. So to your point, do we need a completely new set of leaders? In other words, is everybody damaged? Are we looking here at a, at a whole array of exhausted volcanoes? Uh, the where everybody's sweep spent, it out. Everybody's spent. You know, out let's with just the get bombs. rid of everybody. Yep. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, we need to educate leaders into how they can be more effective. And I just think this is an issue of cognition. I think that very cognition intelligent... Cognition well, well, I just don't think they're aware of these things. I think many leaders are in situations right now where they're so dominated by the challenges that they face that they're not stepping back and saying, how do I need to present effective leadership to my organization? And what these four areas of follower needs are really saying to leaders is, hang on a minute, don't get so locked into the weeds of the problems that you're looking at right now. Step back and ask yourself, where am I instilling hope in my people? How am I creating a stable sense of what this organization is trying to achieve? How can I make sure I lead with compassion? We've got to lose 5,000 people in the next three weeks. How can I make sure that the true compassion of the organization comes through in circumstances where we're having to, having to lose so much headcount? I think if leaders can step back and start to attend to these needs, it's not a case of changing everybody out. It's, it's getting cognition around these things so that leaders can be better educated around what great leadership looks like. And one of the ways that the individual can uh, take a step in that direction is to uh, buy the book, Strength-Based Leadership, a Great Leaders Teams, Why People Follow. Tom Rath and Barry Conchi, and in there is a, uh, a test, if you will, that will give them a, a litmus test, a, a measure of, of how well they're doing, and perhaps they can then adjust their sights and how they approach the issues of leadership uh, in a different way. It will provide them with language to describe their strengths from a leadership perspective, Paul, and, uh, and I think that's a great starting point for leaders to, to embark on this journey. And if the people are not leaders, uh, necessarily, but they, as, as you point out, their leadership is exhibited in some form of basis of their lives, whether the leadership is of a family or in their church or their social linkages, will this give them a better indication of thinking about the people that they're looking at as leaders leadership. in the context of having taken the test? Leadership plays out at many levels in organization. It's not a singular pursuit, it's a collective pursuit. It, it happens in, uh, in sales organizations, it happens on a factory floor, it happens in a call center. Uh, anybody who's in a position where they have uh, a direct line of people reporting into them, where they are responsible for getting people motivated towards tasks, where they are looking more longer term at work, uh, they've got things to learn from this book which will teach them how to do it better. Barry Kanchi, uh, thank you very much for being with me. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work. Here, the book again, Strength-Based Leadership. Great leaders, teams, why people follow. Tom Rath and Barry Kanchi. Good luck with the book and good luck, with, um, good luck to all of us. Thank you and thanks for, thanks for the opportunity, Paul. And there you have it, the opinion of one man, it hardly co-authored, Tom Rath. Barry Kanchi, Strength-Based Leadership. Interesting discussion. I think uh, he handled the issue of what do we got now versus when the book was written. Always an issue these days. The everything old is new again, or we're started at a new beginning, and therefore we have to take a measure of the advice that we're given to confirm. Do our own due diligence just to make sure that that which we thought was true 
passes that reasonable man or woman test? Does it make sense? In this case, I believe it does. People's strengths are people's strengths. I think they are twisted by the good times. They are tested in the bad times. And we have to uh, make sure that hubris in the good times doesn't carry us past our strengths to make us think that our weaknesses have become strengths by virtue of circumstances. Seldom happens. And then we don't need any more examples of the truth of that than what we've seen over the recent months, particularly since December, when the world has continued to fall in, find new bottoms day in and day out in ways that we never would have anticipated. Paul McLaughlin here, McLaughlin at work. The work walk. What do we got for you next week? We had strengths this week. And again, that test in the back of strengths-based leadership, you, you, you want to take advantage of that. A little something extra, measure what you got. Which brings us to Measure What You Got, the book that we're going to be discussing next week, The Expertise, and the subtitle is Why Every Extraordinary Business is Driven by Purpose. The title, get a hold of this, It's Not What You Sell, it's what you stand for. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but we're going to find out when we speak to Roy Spence next week. Roy is the author. He's the uh, chairman and CEO of GSDNM, Idea City, a leading national marketing communications advertising company that has grow helped us grow some of the world's most successful brands. He's going to be with us in person for a lengthy discussion of purpose and its importance. We've had a couple of purpose-driven books in the past. I look forward to the discussion with uh, Roy Spence next week. One of the things that we can offer to you as part of the McLaughlin Company family, one of the aspects of the McLaughlin Company is being McLaughlin at work now these many years. At one point we had a show called The Crow Show, which is work spelled backwards, and through the good offices of Matrix Media, moved that along to McLaughlin at work, happily brought to you week in and week out with scintillating authors, business experience, the stuff that you want to hear about that you don't get anywhere else in the depth that you get here. Out of that has grown... An audio, uh, an audio platform that humanizes executive communications brought to you uniquely by the McLaughlin Company. Listen in. If you want to access that, we're going to have ways that you can do that in the future. But this is an opportunity to put your executive voice on your website. We uh, suffer today that executive communications in general lack are wanting for immediacy and intimacy and informality and inclusivity and ultimately a credibility. And why is that? In the main, because the voice, executive's voice, very seldom sound, very seldom found. Interesting Freudian slip between found and sound, but very seldom sound uh, found on the website. And that's uh, something that we want to address here. The platform, listen in. 
in that audio platform in which we can take your message of your company, work with your senior executive team, and hone and edit and record, digitally record, that message in a way that you can put it on your website. And this listen-in message on the opportunity for addressing employee issues or issues of shareholders or investors is uh, uh, scripted, it is uh, controlled, it's tailored, it's timely, it's high quality, it's humanizing, it's warm and personal as these shows are, and as your response, general listeners, to McLaughlin at Work has proven, we want to be able to make that available to you on your website. So if you want to take advantage of this, you are a listener to McLaughlin at Work, you like the style, you like the communication, you like the integrity, you like the way it comes across, you like the way the people come across, I believe we can do the same thing for your senior executive team, whether it's reaching out internally, whether you've got a distributed workforce and you want to make it more real, a cost-effective audio, perhaps with still pictures. I think that that carries the day, carries the message much more effectively. At least that's what we feel here on McLaughlin at Work. won't work for everybody, but for many where many websites where you fear that you may show up on YouTube before you can defend yourself on your company website, we offer a alternative. We offer a controlled message, easily updated, flexible, can be recorded in your office. like to think of it mostly on the East Coast because I think that the tone is important and that comes better not using the telephone. But we want you to think about that. Be in touch with me, Paul McLaughlin. Through uh, email, paul at the com, and uh, take a look at Listen In, the audio platform that humanizes executive communications. We can do for you what we do for authors and experts, which is bring their message across, make your message real to your audience, be it an internal employee audience or be it an external customer, client, shareholder, investor audience. Think about it. Think about putting McLaughlin at work to work for you. Nothing like using your strengths. Our thanks to uh, Barry Conchie on today, Strengths-Based Leadership. Next week, Roy Spence. It's not what you sell, it's what you stand for, why every extraordinary business is driven by purpose, Hope you enjoyed the uh, pictures that went along with it today. More of those coming as we refine the process and get it smoothed out better and more pictures. It's a start. Never stop improving. And that's what communications is all about, is trying to, whenever you can, it doesn't have to be good, but you certainly can make it better on the way to making it perfect. Thanks for joining me. Listen in next week. Paul McLaughlin, your host here. McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. Have a good one next week.